0: Shocking scenes of desperation and chaos in Afghanistan are being seen around the world. Can't believe my eyes, says the man who shot this video of people clinging to an American cargo jet as it takes off. Machine gun fire could be heard as thousands of panic-stricken Afghans stormed the airport. They battled their way onto civilian planes, which took off with hundreds of passengers jammed inside. One air traffic controller marveled as a pilot ferried 800 people to Dubai in a plane designed for 150.
1: 800 people on your jet? Holy cow.
0: There were more scenes of panic as night fell, and thousands more fought to get on any plane going anywhere. No! Caught the in the maelstrom are We learned just as we came on the air tonight that another service member has died as I set off the top 13 U.S. service members killed in this attack. And we took note today, what the general said, how he described what these service members were tasked with doing right at the airport gate in this dangerous mission, their bravery, their risk, and now their families back home forever changed. Here's our chief global affairs correspondent, Martha DeLattis. It is the deadliest attack on US forces in Afghanistan in a decade. And now the families of American service members will get that knock on the door an officer there to deliver the worst possible news. The Marines and the Navy medic killed today were guarding the airport in Kabul, screening each and every person who went in. More than 104,000 men, women, and children checked for weapons.
1: This is close-up work. The breath of the person you are searching is upon you. While we have overwatch in place, we still have to touch the clothes of the person that's coming in. I think you all can appreciate the courage and the dedication that is necessary to do this job and to do it time after time.
0: For days, nearly 6,000 American troops have worked tirelessly to evacuate U.S. citizens and their Afghan allies. After the airport was overrun, desperate Afghans swarming the runways, the Marines restored order, securing the perimeter and facilitating one of the largest airlifts in history brave men and women consoling traumatized families around the clock, but also becoming a prime terrorist target. The threat growing by the hour,
2: I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest for this week's podcast. Uh, he is a retired lieutenant colonel, um, a Green Beret, and the author of Operation Pineapple Express, which will be in stores on August 30th. Um, how's it going?
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, John. Appreciate it, man.
2: So, uh, as the the withdrawal was taking place... Um, from Afghanistan, it was very chaotic. Uh, Anyone who was paying attention was was hearing the name Operation Pineapple Express. Um, So I'm I'm real glad that I'm able to talk to you today. I've been wanting to speak to someone who was involved in that effort um, uh, ever since uh, last year. So the, um, you know, leading up to the withdrawal date, uh, you know, a couple of months before that, Uh, there were estimates given from U.S. government uh, analysts about how long the the Afghan government could defend themselves against the Taliban. Uh, That turned out to be way off. Uh, What were you thinking during this period of time?
1: Well, I think a lot of us in the special ops community, John, were were not of the same opinion of what the government was saying, for sure. I mean, you had Secretary Blinken saying that, you know, I a collapse between a Friday and a Monday. Um, you had um, you had General Milley, you know, saying that like this is not, you know, the the Taliban are not the Viet Cong, you know. I don't think you're going to see a North Vietnam scenario or a Hanoi scenario. And then of course you had Biden saying um, you're not going to see people getting uh, choppered off the roof of the embassy. Right. And then he was right. I mean, they were actually ch- choppered off the soccer field adjacent mm. to the embassy, but. But the but the rest of the reality was striking, you know. And and so, um, for me personally, I was I was in touch with what got the whole thing started. With me was I was in touch with an Afghan commando, uh, uh, special forces NCO and graduate of our qualification, the Green Beret qualification course, named Nazam. I'd met him in two thousand and ten when we were doing village stability operations in rural Afghanistan. We had become really good friends. And so as Afghanistan fell apart, starting really late spring, early summer. Um, he had since moved on from the army and was a contractor and was trying to get an SIV, the special immigration visa, and had been waiting for over a year. And and as he was giving me a play-by-play, because the Taliban were texting him every day saying, we know where you are, dude, and we're coming for you. Um, and he was hiding out in his uncle's house like and Frank and Prince after province was falling. Like I still have it on my signal chat. And it was really it was it was really weird, man, because like it seemed like every other day starting early summer in June, you started seeing, you know, provinces fall. And for anyone who spent any time in Afghanistan, like when that many provinces are falling, you know, the fix is in and the end is near.
2: Yeah, it seemed like it happened rapidly. Um, I know in some places there was fighting, but. As I understand it, in some of these provinces, I think the Taliban sort of offered the village or whatever an ultimatum, and many of them just said, "All right, we'll join you." Is, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good assessment. I mean, the the, the, the Taliban, as an insurgent, were very savvy. You, you know, over the years that they all they were a very very savvy. Um effective insurgent. And, and you know, they need to be respected for that because they were. And, and they did the ultimate psychological operation. The ultimate PSYOP was pulled off because you're right. There were not a ton of rounds fired when they rolled into Kabul. And, and they had actually been um, conducting surgical PSYOPs by texting district governors, village elders, people like Nizam, and basically saying, look, you need to give, you know, you need to surrender, turn your weapons in, take your uniform off, and just meld back into the village, and no one's going to say anything. You'll be okay. Now, Nizam was getting texts that we're going to kill you because he had hunted them as a commando for years. But really, most of the intimidation was happening via text and personal phone calls. And then the other thing that the Taliban did that was very effective was they they would seize like provincial capitals and district centers without claiming, laying claim to a lot of the rural areas but it but the optic was they were in control of the province they were in control of the district and when the uniformed police and the general purpose army saw that they just didn't have the morale or the horsepower to stay so they walked off the job
2: so operation pineapple express um can you explain what that is and also like what made you think that this would actually work
1: I, I actually never, in my wildest dreams, thought that I'd be doing it, much less that it would work. Uh, the, uh, the, the The Operation Pineapple Express was was simply the name of a of an informal group of volunteers, mostly veterans, who tried to honor a promise in Afghanistan to our respective Afghan allies who we had worked with. It, it, it like many other volunteer, it was one of many volunteer groups that stepped up. And I want to make sure I say that because there were so many volunteer groups that did such an amazing job and they all should be honored. Pineapple Express was just one of them. And the book tells that story of, of the people that were in our group. And it really started, John, with that commando I was telling you about, Nizam, reaching out to me and, and, and basically letting me know that he was being hunted and he wasn't going to make it out alive. And I had lost so many friends in that country over three tours. I had um, become so just disgusted with how our, our our multi multiple administrations were handling that war and, frankly, the careerism in the military leading up to the, the collapse of that 20-year war. I just felt like the only good thing right now that I have in front of me as this country falls apart and all of my friends are asking, like, what was it for? Is this young former commando— who has no way out? And I just thought, man, if we could just get him out, maybe there would be one good thing that came out of this war. And that was it, man. It was the same thing that you would do for a friend in in the Marine Corps or Special Forces, like you just, you know, it was it was trying to help a friend and honor a promise. And that's it. And we put together a handful of, of guys that um, helped move him across the city using chat rooms and. Connections and ultimately got him within four feet of the gate and then pulled through a hole in the fence by a, a diplomat who was a former Green Beret. And the call sign or the code word that he had to use to get through that gate was Pineapple. And so we became that's where we task force Pineapple. Pineapple. And then ultimately, we ended up with like 150 volunteers in our group. It grew very fast when they heard that we had gotten Nizam out. Other SEALs, Rangers, Special Forces guys had their partners. And we decided to make like a large signal chat room. And then basically, we worked with active duty members from the 82nd Airborne and a few uh, folks from the State Department who were inside the airport to create an underground railroad. Uh, that we called Operation Pineapple Express, and that's where we moved the bulk of these people, hundreds, through a four-foot hole in
2: a fence and onto the United States. Wow, that was amazing. Um, yeah, I remember the the entire time was just like very chaotic. Um, people were like, people were hitting me up asking me if I if I yeah. can get like uh, an air, can I get an aircraft or, or can I get someone that could secure a landing or like it was just complete madness and um yeah uh you know i, I remember talking to different people and and people were promising all these different things like or what what they can provide and uh a lot, like 95 percent of it fell through um yeah and and there was issues like yeah. getting like you had to get clearance from the state department and, and things like that um yeah so it was it was just a pretty crazy situation yeah yeah
1: it was. It was terrible, man. And, and, you know, the thing was, like, these were our friends. These were people that we had served with in combat. These were people who had a lot of us are here today because of the actions they took on our behalf, whether that was an, as an interpreter, a commando. There were, you know, these young girls and female judges who had risked everything. So, I mean, it was a terrible time because you're, you're watching. You're basically watching a wholesale abandonment play out in real time. And for those of us who i were were bothered by that at a personal level you know you want to do something and you want to make an impact you but you what are you going to do right i mean it's not like you can you know a few people loaded up and went over there but for the bo- the most part like that's not what people were doing so how do you even how do you even do something meaningful and you're right. There were all of these people jumping into the fray. Some of them had no idea what they were doing. They were very well intended, but they had no experience in that country. They had um, they had very little um, experience in these kinds of like duress situations where in extremists and people's lives hang in the balance and like, ma- you know, managing remote type operations, you get somebody killed really fast. And then of course you had the opportunists who jumped into this thing, right? The the large contract companies and the other people who saw dollar signs mm-hmm. immediately. Um, and there was some of that too. And how do you know, like, how do you know who's who? That's why Apple, it was, you know, that was why I, I, I did to get involved again. Cause I didn't want to get involved in Afghanistan. I'd been retired for 10 years, man. I, you know, I left, I left the army because I didn't want to, I just didn't want to deal with the army anymore. Uh, and I didn't like where things were going in Afghanistan. So to get back involved and to have like a task force, an informal task force of 150 people, you know, operating on our on our Mac computers, like it's not exactly what I wanted to do at 53 years old. But, you know, I felt like we needed to. Um, but it was very challenging. It was very difficult. And and but what what I will say that our value proposition and I'll I'll, I'll throw it back to you after this was. If you were to ask me like what did the volunteer groups like Pineapple Dunkirk Team America what did they offer is we knew where the really high risk people were mm-hmm. we knew who they were and they trusted us to move them and present them responsibly to the forces at the gate who didn't know who they were and I think that was the that was the gap filled was because for whatever reason the forces who did amazing work, were not allowed to do a real push into the city and grab people. So could help those people move to proximity of those Marines, paratroopers, whatever, and then get pulled in based on our ability to vet them in real time and then provide that information to the people at, at, the, at, at, at the wall. You know, but the real courage came from the Afghans and those Marines and paratroopers and NATO troops who stood watch on the wall.
2: So all the people that you got out uh, that got out through Operation uh, Pineapple Express were they all uh, SIV holders? No,
1: you know that's the crazy thing. Some of them were. I mean, some of them were. Some of them were SIV holders, but but many of them were not. Here's here's why. And it's a really important point for your listeners to think about. And when they read the Pineapple Express book, they'll they'll get a deeper appreciation for this. But so the way the SIV works in a nutshell is if, if you do work for the U.S. government, then you are eligible for the SIV if you are at risk or deemed at risk you know, by the State Department. And so certainly anybody who worked at, for the government was el- – so interpreters, but not just interpreters. I mean the State Department uh, allowed anybody that worked at the – could have been a groundskeeper at the embassy – you were eligible for an SIV, right? Well, here's who was not eligible for an SIV. The Afghan commandos, the Afghan special forces, the Afghan Casca the Afghan National Mine Reduction Group, um, and the Afghan special mission unit that flew like all the high performance missions. So, and you go, okay, well, so what? Well, in 2014, United States handed combat responsibility over, lead responsibility to, We went from OEF to, what is it, Unified Resolve or whatever. Um, the, the bulk of the fighting, 98% of the fighting was picked up by those units I just named. And anybody will tell you that. Like, they they took on the bulk of the load. So they actively hunted the Taliban for, what, eight years with no relief, no breaks. And then all of a sudden, the country falls. We pull all their contract support out in June, so they have no operational fires, no medevac, no ISR, nothing, right? And then we just leave, and and they are left completely alone. They can't go back to their homes because their records have been compromised in the Ministry of Defense. They have their families with them, and now they're the most hunted people in in, in Afghanistan. And just to make it sporty, because they worked for the Afghan government and not the U.S., they're not eligible for an SIV.
2: So. So that's the reason they couldn't get an SIV?
1: Yeah, because that's it. It's a technicality. Technic but here's here was the thing. Because it was such a push for the gates and it was such a chaotic situation, during that time, they were allowing humanitarian parole. They call it P1, P2. But you it during that time, if you could if you could get the paperwork filled out, this is what a lot of these groups were doing. They were filling out humanitarian parole paperwork. They were getting it submitted, and even if it was underway, um, you could get them pushed through that way. And and we did, and that's what we were doing. So we spent as much time, you know, coordinating them getting pulled in through this four-foot hole. But we also spent a lot of time, you know, cacking out the P1, P2 request, making sure it was received, and that there was some at least initiated paperwork that would get them pulled through. Now, that was only a fraction of the Afghan Special Operations Forces. There are still well over 25,000 of those people I just named who did not make it out. And now the State Department is not even looking at humanity as a possibility for these people. So they have no pathway. They have no pathway out. A barber on Bagram Air Base right now could apply for an edit and theoretically be flown out of country in a few months. A commando who fought for eight years has no pathway right now to get out of the country
2: that's crazy um when this was happening it is right yeah it's so this is why
1: veterans go ahead john
2: no no go ahead go ahead please
1: yeah it is it well it's it's the reason that our veteran i believe that i think it's the reason that you see a survey that says 73 percent of veterans feel betrayed 67 percent feel humiliated by this withdrawal i think it's the reason that Recruiting and retention are in the toilet right now. I think the younger generation of warriors has seen this. I think at the same time, the older generation that experienced this is stepping out. They're like, nope, I'm not going to be around this, and um, it's it's caused I think just a a huge moral injury, an injury to the soul on so many of our not just our active duty people but our veterans as well. The people in Pineapple, people in Dunkirk, who, you know, the deal, man. I mean. Years right? Did we do this? How many? How many deployments? How many losses of friends? And we try to put all that behind us, and then all of a sudden, we get sucked back into the fray because the government won't pick up the phone when our friends call. Them. Pick it up, and now one year later, we're on the world's longest 911 call with no relief, and you know, trying to solve this Uncle Sam-sized problem, as my buddy Duke says, with our with our with our pension funds, and uh, it's it's egregious.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, that, that was, there's no real way to put it, but it was an embarrassment for the United States, uh, you know, the way that the withdrawal happened um, and the fact that the, you know, the yeah, Taliban yeah. ended up with so much American equipment, um, you know, they were flying helicopters uh. and all that. And uh, and if I've seen images yeah. now of, you know, Taliban, I'm not exactly sure where in Afghanistan, but, you know, they have M4s with, you know, different uh, yeah, Gizmos on the gun, so yep, yep. Uh, It's kind of crazy to see. And then, uh, even if you look sort of back out of Afghanistan, uh, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. Y- you can even say that maybe the Russians saw that and took it as America's weak. Let's jump in now. Um, so uh, I have no doubt that that I have no right. doubt that that happened. Yeah, I have no doubt that, that 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 was
1: that that was a catalyst for Russia in their calculus. No, none at all. Um, and and I talk about this in the in the Pineapple Express book. I talk a lot about um, the Taliban showing up at you know and, and you know when 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 we were at the airfield when 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 all that was going on, the Taliban were actually forming an outer ring of security uh, in conjunction with the 82nd Airborne and these other forces. Like they were actually partnered with them, if you can believe that, and you know, the, the Afghan people that were trying to get out would have to go through those checkpoints and just get their crap beat out of them. Um, they were wearing our gear, carrying M4s, like, it, you know, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I had a friend, uh, he's an infantryman, combat infantryman from Iraq named Chris, and he got blown up in Iraq and buried alive upside down in his Humvee, dug himself out with his bare hands. He's an amazing guy. And, and he tells the story and, um, he actually, we're doing a play about the war called Last Out, and he's in the play, and I, and I was, he was thinking about not being in the play, and I, I contacted him, and I'm like, Chris, man, like, you've always been a part of this thing, why why are you thinking about not doing it? I thought it was like stage fright or whatever, and he said, no, man, he goes, I'm actually embarrassed for people to know I'm a soldier, because wow. I used to be so proud of it, he goes, I'm just embarrassed, and I was like, oh, my God, like it hit me, man, that hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, and I, 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 I think there's a lot of that going on right now. And for our nation, you know, our veterans and our military families and our gold star families, they are our moral compass. They are, you know, that's what I thought was really cool about what happened with with this terrible story was that in the darkest of times when our government didn't show up and nobody else was coming, you had these veterans and these other volunteers that stepped in and showed us what leadership looked like, even though they knew they were. I mean, I knew I was out over my skis, man. I knew I didn't have a clue what I was doing in many regards, because like it was such a big problem, but I did know how to do certain things, and that's what we we tried. And I think that resonated with a lot of Americans. But to to your larger point, and I think this is really important, is one of the things that came out of this that I think history will reflect is a massive national security, uh, a negative effect on national security. Mm -hmm. Certainly Russia, I think, made their move because they perceived us as extremely weak, but also, you know, we're not gonna fight Russia and China, near peers, even Al-Qaeda or ISIS unilaterally. We're going to work with partners. And what partner on the planet right now would wanna work with us?
2: Right. Right, and, and, and that's why you know? a lot of those and, things are important. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you, if you make a mistake yeah. at the top and, and it, it's, it turns into a debacle or something, other countries are paying attention to everything we do. Uh, and when they see that, they're like, OK, this is the time to make whatever moves we want to make. And uh, I think it was like yep. a, a week after the last flight out, the, the Chinese were in in, uh, in Kabul, uh, you know, shaking hands with the Taliban and making all kind of deals. So, uh, it's you know, it's, it's a yeah, ripple yeah. effect.
1: Yep. I, 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 one of the guys that was in the book, uh, his name is UC Tanner. He's a Finnish diplomat who, who came in to help get uh, persons of interest for Finland out. Hmm. And he was a really cool dude. He was actually the guy who unknowingly had the four-foot hole cut in the fence. And the, and the way that, kind of a sidebar here, but the way that the whole Pineapple Express unfolded, and I'm not going to give it away because I think people have to read it, but like the way that that Underground Railroad became a reality to move these hundreds of people through an open sewage canal and then through a four-foot hole in the fence, the different people that played a part in that and how they were each just trying to do the next right thing, right? And somehow it all got woven together and became this, this amazing mechanism by which people made it to freedom. But it was really the spirit of these people trying to do something bigger than themselves that really led to that one of them was you he was the guy that that cut this hole in the fence to get two afghan women out before we ever even dreamed of using that hole in the fence days prior um but he said that he saw a a massive uh soviet uh airlift platform land um somewhere around the 19th or 20th i think they call it the antonov maybe i can't remember but you know it's like one of the biggest planes in the world and he said he saw just uh Military vehicle after military vehicle of Russians, I didn't say I said Soviet, but Russians um, coming out the back of that airplane speeding into Kabul with Taliban escorts. Right. As we were doing the Neo Al. So, you know, this this claim to again, and this is where as citizens I think that we have to inform in what's going on and we have to call BS on our politicians, regardless of their political affiliation or Democrat. But to say that we're getting out of Afghanistan so that we can focus on the near-peer threats elsewhere, like, how can we even say that when, when that's happening? The Chinese are, you know, occupying Bagram Air Force Base. Like, we literally gave up the near-peer fight um, in one of the most contentious places on Earth.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, I, I will say, uh, as this was happening and and— you kind of start to see and, and hear that there's success in getting people out. And a, a lot of that was being coordinated by people who were not working for the government. Um, uh, many people are my friends, uh, a bunch of people that I know were heavily involved in actually getting people uh, onto flights and stuff like that. So yeah, um, I did feel proud yeah. to know yeah, these people and and sort of be involved in, in, in the community of, of people like this. And And another thing I'll say is I agree. Uh, I've done podcasts with uh, Green Berets who served in Vietnam, uh, guys who were in McVisog and stuff like that. And um, uh, one of them, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Mike Stahl. And uh, one thing he's told me was one of his biggest regrets about Vietnam was not being able to uh, get any of the mountain yards out or, or the, the tribal people who fought alongside them uh, against the north vietnamese uh and and not being able to help those people out um and and there was sort of a a large-scale slaughter when when america pulled out um so i know that you know fast forward to afghanistan you know that you guys felt the same way and and but in in this day and age you're actually able to do something about it and i think that's fantastic
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, John. And I I, I love the fact that you went to Vietnam and uh, interviewed some some SF guys. One, because I believe, you know, I just can't say enough about our Vietnam veteran population. You think about what those men and women have been through in their life and how we treated them as they came home from that war. And what they went through in their own moral injury, the, the levels of abandonment that they had to live with, with the Montagnards and the Nungs. And yet, if you think about who was at our shoulder every time you turned around on a redeployment in the 20-year war, it was Vietnam veterans because they didn't want us to go through what they went through. And to your point, I interviewed also – when I was writing the book, I interviewed quite a few um, guys who worked with the CIDG program, the the civilian irregular defense group that was primarily yards and what we had based our program of village stability on in Afghanistan, and uh, every one of them, if when they talked about the, 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 the abandonment of the Montagnards, they would start weeping. Yeah. Because th- those were the fiercest, most loyal fighters and, and who gave their lives, exchanged their lives for American lives, and, and, the, and they were just abandoned. And then, and then the, the, Viet, the Vietnamese embarked on a, because they are ethnically different, mm-hmm. the Montagnards are, they embarked on genocide. Right. I mean, just wholesale genocide. While the world kind of slept, but I will say this one, one bright spot. And I, and I think this speaks to the optimistic side of what all this represents in, in what our veterans and military families represent to the nation is I, we interviewed this guy named George and we're actually going to put him on my rooftop podcast. We'll, we'll get you the link, but he's in his eighties, fifth group, Vietnam green beret and formed a nonprofit, and for decades now, almost 50 years, has been pulling mo- thousands of Montagnards out of uh, Vietnam and, and neighboring countries, and um, uh, resettling them all over the country. But in a, in in a, in many, in, even in tribal areas, they've bought land, and they have long houses oh, in, in awesome. North Carolina where they can hang on to their tribal customs. Yeah. And, and he's still pulling them out. And I think the point here on that is, and I've tried to communicate this to President Biden, Secretary Blinken, and even our generals who just don't seem to get it, like these men and women will never stop. They will never stop until, just as George has shown us, until they are properly relieved of their person, of this responsibility, because we do not leave partners behind. And, and it is inculcated in our DNA. And so if they think this is just going to go away, it's not. And they are doing terrible harm to a very vulnerable, valuable segment of our population, which is our veterans.
2: You know, as this was happening um, last year, uh, you know, there's always, it seems like on the far ends of the political spectrum, uh, there are people who have like sentiments that are along the lines of. We shouldn't be involved in any kind of issues anywhere, you know. Pull the troops out. Um, you know, don't waste time on on helping anybody. That kind of thing. And and some people who are of that mindset during that time period on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, are speaking about, um, you know, we shouldn't send any more Americans into harm's way. Just get everybody out. And and then they'll say, I there's one guy I remember him writing something like. Uh, You know, these these people are cowards uh, talking about the uh, Afghan allies. These people are cowards. um, You know, they should fight their own battles. And then I remember reading that and thinking, like, that's so crazy, because if you look it up, I think they estimate like I I forget the number. I think it's like 70,000 killed in action fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and and any of the other groups in Afghanistan, like Afghans, uh, National Army and police force. And it's like these people sacrificed everything. Like, what are you talking about? It's probably,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and it's probably far higher than that, you know? And, And I can tell you, like, there's a lot that you just said there to unpack, but I interviewed, you know, we helped get out Afghan special operators, Afghan commandos, um, Afghan female sergeants. And you know what I found, John, I interviewed every single one of them and we told them, you know, and these, these people all grew up in refugee camps, right? Mm. So these false narratives, when people say things like that, first of all, you know, social media is just a digital killing, killing field for people to just spew, which is unfortunate. Um, but you know that 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 is a very very false narrative. It's just not. It's not informed by truth. Like you know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of Afghan special operators, and what I found was the bulk of them grew up in as refugees in Pakistan because they were displaced, either during the Soviet. Their parents were you know displaced during the Soviet occupation, the civil war, or the Taliban. One of those displaced them. So every one of these soldiers. Man and woman spent their, their youth in a, in, a, in a refugee camp in Pakistan. So imagine when they were able to come back into the country at a fairly young age and, you know, post
2: 9-11,
1: all of a sudden there's, you know, kind of music spilling into the streets. There's this new um, thing going on in the country, you know, a, a new force of people in the country. The Taliban are gone. The fighting, at least at the level it was, has stopped. And for many of them, it represented an opportunity to join something and be part of something that they were hungry for. And, and and I'm telling you, man, I interviewed dozens of iconic Afghan special operators who all said the same thing. They 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 jumped at the chance. Nizam, who is the original pineapple in the book, you know, his nickname was the Backpack Man because he never in his whole life had a had a home of his own. His his father was killed by the Soviets when he was st- six months old in an ambush house was bombed he was found under the timbers and his little bassinet you know um somehow he survived but but then so, his mom was sold into slavery like he never even had a place he slept in the barn until he was 11 years old and ran away and lived on the streets right joined the commandos when he was 12 uh 18 and and never looked back wow. like, that's the kind of people that joined these units and they fought now here's the other thing you talk about people who fought like we would go over there, and our our special operators and our infantrymen and our marines—you can't say enough about their courage—and they went over time and time again. But the Afghan fu- soldiers—they um, never got a break. Right. They didn't get relief. They didn't, you know, they they literally, you know, one rotation after the next, and the the trauma and the nightmares—they just kept going right through it. Um, and this notion that they like dropped their guns and ran—I will tell you—the Afghan special forces and commandos fought. Even after Ghani had left the country, they fought after their generals took the money and ran. Um, One of the guys in the book uh, named Bashir um, at Camp Moorhead killed 14 Taliban on the day Kabul fell Um, and was calling us saying, what do I do? You know, my family's about to be overrun. Should I keep fighting? Wow. You know, and and, and that narrative just does. That's really why I wrote one of the reasons I wrote the book, John, is because I wanted Americans to see like this is told. i tell the book in the third person i tell those stories so that you can see for yourself like this is what these people did this is what they risked for freedom this is what the veterans did who stood by their shoulder and all of these narratives you're seeing on social media and on the news are just crap like they're not even they're just spew and if if you really want to see the story check this out because i mean again i interviewed just dozens and the stories were all the same
2: so all these interviews that you're referring to are these all for the book or is it the podcast as well? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, they're all for the book. I interview some for the podcast just to get like to go deeper on some stuff, but yeah, in the book, the way the book. If you have you seen the movie Dunkirk?
2: You know what the, the remake? I have not seen it, and I I should have watched it by now, but I haven't.
1: Yeah, it's really good. You should watch it. It's a great, but it you know it. it, it I would just say anyone listening to this, if you've seen the remake of Dunkirk. The, the pineapple book reads like that. Hmm. It toggles back and forth. For example, you know, uh Will Lyles, uh a Green Beret captain, lost both legs above the knee in Afghanistan. He was he he worked with me in in, in, in southern Afghanistan. Um he, you know, so imagine here he is years later, he lost his legs in 2010, finally got his life back, remarried, got kids. And he's a C-suite executive at a lumber mill in Texas, and all of a sudden everything falls apart, and now he's on the phone trying to save the very interpreter who saved his life on the battlefield. You know, and you toggle back and forth between that interpreter, um, Kazem, and and Will as they try to as they try to help each other get through, and, and he's part of the larger pineapple effort. So. That's the way the storylines go. It moves really fast. But what you end up with when you're done is you really, really, really get a sense of the true Afghan story. And you see just amazing how amazing these people are and how deep their friendships were with the Americans that stood up for
2: them. Yeah. And some of those stories are just like you can't even imagine living like that, especially – if you grew up in the West or in a country that's well off, um, you know, obviously in America we have our own problems yeah. and some people are are not fortunate and, um, you know, they live in sort of rough situations. But for the most part, most Americans cannot imagine growing up in a refugee camp in Pakistan, you know, or in a tribal area or whatever right. and and then having to right. sleep in a barn and, like, Fighting from the time that you're eighteen, like it's just like that's that is something that most people cannot imagine and uh, and then to have like you know s- some some guy on Twitter you know bashing these people or, or someone on the news yeah. bashing these people, it's, it's just really insane. Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought inflation and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four patriot survival food kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good-for-25-years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact, sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes, just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4patriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to four patriots.com and use the code Recon to get ten percent off. That's four patriots.com. Use the code Recon. Start building your own stockpile today.
1: It is, it's a it's a false narrative and, and, and honestly, they don't know the first thing about these people and what they what they sacrificed and frankly for twenty years they really they they put everything they had into a democracy everything they had into a free society and you know the thing is i've studied and worked around insurgencies my whole life and i'll have that conversation about ukraine versus afghanistan anytime anybody wants because here's the thing first of all the conditions in ukraine were radically different than afghanistan ukraine was an external enemy the russians invaded and anytime a country is invaded externally People rally, they forget their differences, and they make a stand. Think of Hitler trying to bomb Britain, like it's always the same. And in fact, look at the Afghans when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. They immensely rallied, and the Mujahideen freedom fighters are who defeated the, 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 the Soviets, but the, the very enemy that's in Ukraine. But when you have an, an insidious insurgent that it comes up from the inside— Their specialty is in dividing the population and eroding their resilience over a period of time. And without a resilience, you cannot resist. And these special ops commandos, these uh, special forces, these NMRG, their resilience was eroded over years. And in June, all of their contract support was pulled away, what gave them a competitive edge. And so when it all fell apart overnight, there was no resilience left. And a lot of these people are still resisting, man. They're fighting. They're pushing back. But um, it's insane to think that we would abandon a partner like that and then just say, hey, tough crap. You're on your own. Uh, Next time, you need to fight harder. Like, that's insane. If we did that to our friends, we would be isolated beyond belief. But yet somehow it's okay to do it as a nation.
2: Yeah, and it's just interesting, like, to – you know, watching news pundits on whatever ne- the network might be when they're talking about these sort of things, national security stuff, foreign policy stuff. And it, if you if you pay attention to these things, there are experts on social media. You can follow professionals who have the experience and they really know what they're talking about, but maybe they don't have a, a large platform as some of these news anchors. Um You start to realize quickly that a lot of them really have no idea what they're talking about. Like, you know, they just kind of go up there and talk. Um,
1: Yeah, it's true, man. It's really the reason I got involved in the media. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the media, to be honest with you, but I got involved in the 24-hour news when ISIS was... On the, on, the, on the rise, I think it was in 2014, because I just, the, the pundits and even the generals that were getting on there, they had no clue what they were talking about. And frankly, I mean, I, and I'm kind of outspoken on this, man, but I, I really don't care. I've got an article that just came out in task and purpose about the moral injury. And one of the things that I'm talking about is that I think we need to like step back and really reconsider this reverence that we have for our admirals and generals like that was in this 20 year war. I mean I know that we hold them in very high regard and you know we have different tribal affiliations with each one of these generals it's like they're their own cult of personality you know both active duty and and past but I'm like why are we why are we sitting here revering these senior officers who 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 frankly from what we can tell you know perpetuated the war in a way that it was not it was not above board what was going on not all of them, but some of them uh, who certainly sat silent during this withdrawal and wholesale abandonment of a partner force. No, no rank on the table as, as resigning or, or retiring. And then and then now with the massive moral injury going on with 73 percent of our veteran population saying they feel betrayed. Where are the generals and the admirals right now speaking out for public hearings and accountability and better vet, uh, 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 mental health care? for our veterans, like you see none of that. I mean, and, and, and I think just whether, you know, I don't know if it's cause you own a contract company and you don't wanna run afoul of the government or what, but you know, and if the shoe fits, wear it. But I, I think that we really need, the, the careerism in the military has gotten out of control. And, and you know, our, our NCOs and our junior officers deserve better and our gold stars and our military families, they deserve better than what they're getting right now from our senior leaders
2: yeah it's it's unfortunate you know the there's situations that have popped up uh you know over the years where you hear about um you know maybe someone from the higher up uh making a call that costs lives or or making a call that lost an, an yeah. initiative or whatever and and there it seems like when things go bad in in many cases the senior officers, there's no penalty for that. It, they just kind of, maybe even get promoted, and uh, and then I've I've seen scenarios where uh, junior officers get thrown under the bus when they were just following direct orders. Yeah. Uh, uh, and yeah. you know what comes to mind is uh, I interviewed um, Michelle Black, who's a Gold Star wife. Uh, her husband, Brian Black, was killed in Niger in uh, 2017 uh, alongside two other Green Berets and one support guy. And um, the, the whole situation was is tragic and terrible. And uh, the, the, the unit was uh, basically overextended and they didn't want to continue to pursue what they were pursuing. But they were told by the headquarters that they had to. And then when everything went wrong, the headquarters, when they were meeting with the families to explain to them what happened, then threw the, the special forces captain under the bus. Um,
1: Absolutely. And, it, it, they sure did. and it's just disgusting. And, and, you know? Yeah, it is disgusting. And, and, you know, that was my old regiment, man. I mean, like, and, and it is disgusting. And, and it's not the only example. Right. That this is what I'm talking about. The the level of careerism that has perpetuated into our into our leadership core. And it's not just uh, officers. It's senior enlisted as well. And, you know, the the the, the to me, for example, when you silent on something like that or you sit silent on what happened with the abandonment of our partner force, that's not being a quiet professional. That's being complicit. <laughs> You know, and 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 when when they're we talk all the time about how we take care of our partners, we talk all the time about how we don't leave a man behind. We talk all the time about how we value our veterans and our families and their mental health. But do we really like do we really do our actions reflect our words? And I have to say, I don't think they do. And I have to say that I think that 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 the senior leader population, both active duty and retired, needs to step up. They need to step up. They need to get into the public space, and they need to help us address this problem because it is the the abandonment of the partner force. We need to stop that cycle. We need to address the, the partners that are still over there, and we need to look at this moral injury on our veteran population. Like These are things that need immediate attention of senior leaders as well, and right now they're AWOL. There's a wonderful article that came out about these guys being AWOL, and I think it's true.
2: Yeah, it, it you know it, it is, and it's it's unfortunate, um, you know, because uh, you know the, it seems that there's when there's an, a situation where it could potentially be a war or something, you know, the politicians are all ready to you know Roger up and, and send troops out without considering what are the long-term effects, um, you know, mental health. Uh, that kind of thing, family care, uh, taking care of gold star families, things like that. Um, and it, it seems like a lot of the process of taking care of people in, you know, while they're serving or, or after they get out, uh, it seems like that sort of falls to the wayside, and and a lot of sort of activism is required to get things done in, in that department. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy.
1: No, it's a really good observation, man. Um, golly, you know, um, and it's one of the reasons. So I've been pretty active in that space, John. Um, man, I, I, I've been pretty active in that space, trying to trying to just bring attention to this. Um, I even I wrote, like I was telling you, I wrote a play about the war before all this happened, called Last Out. And it's performed by veterans, but it's all about the long war and and how the wheels just came off for this one Green Beret team sergeant and his family and the impact of modern war. I mean, just just helping people understand the impact of modern war. And and if you're going to, you know, when you deploy our, you know, my son's in the infantry now. And when you deploy these young men and women, it's not a fortnight game, right? You know, uh, it's it's not it's not some and we've become there's such a dissonance, so much distance between the leaders and the led, and so much distance between the defenders uh, and 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 those who are defended. And I think we've really got to bridge that gap. We've really got to bridge that gap. A big a big problem uh, with all of this is that um, that we, we people don't understand the, the cost and impact of modern war on the small percentage of our population, including our senior officers. You know, and and I think we've got to get, we've got to get to that as we come out of this debacle or our children, you know, are going to go down the same road. And again, going back to where you and I started with this interview, I don't think it's an accident that recruiting and retention is so low right now. I think young people see full well what's happened in Afghanistan that, you know, and by the way, the U.S. military, you know, institutional trust, most social scientists agree that institutional trust is a necessity for a stable democracy. Well, the highest rated institutional trust entity had, for decades has been the U.S. military, well above 70%. It's now 56% mm. over just the last couple of years, and it was an 11-point drop right after Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know, I know a guy, he's probably like, I don't know, 26 or 27, something like that. But I met him when he was 18, I think. Um, He wanted to be a Green Beret. He joined the infantry. Um, I'm I'm not exactly sure what he's done since he joined, but I spoke to him recently, and he's getting out, and he's going to become a police officer. And uh, when I asked him, like, you know, what's going on, He basically said, like, I don't, you know, I don't like the direction that things are going in. So I'm just going to get out. And and that's him speaking from being in the infantry, um, you know, working in the army and and seeing what's happening. And and when I met him when he was 18, he was like, you know, all he wanted to do was be a Green Beret. And then now that he's we're at where we're at, he's just said, you know what, I I can't deal with it. And it's really unfortunate to see.
1: It really is. And when you think about, you know, you said something really key is that he wanted to do it probably since he was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And true for most of our special operators. So now you're not only are you losing that that social capital, you're losing that tremendous asset that that wanted that serves at that deepest level. But think about how that translates, John, into veterans like. So most of the people in Pineapple, Dunkirk, these were long term veterans, multi year, multi combat tour veterans. Uh, who love the country. they And despite all the tough stuff that happened in combat, they would do it all over again. Like these are truly, it's our moral compass of a nation. They represent what's best in our nation. And I will tell you, we have a serious problem on our hands right now as a nation because our moral compass is fading back into the shadows. They feel 73% feel betrayed. Uh, an iconic team sergeant named Donnie, who's in my book, um, talked to me after the explosion happened, after the last plane left, this was in the winter. He had been, we had been working safe houses to try to keep our commandos alive and 20 babies born after the explosion in safe houses and food drops. And one of the guys he had worked so hard to keep alive had been found and killed by the Taliban. And he was so devastated by it. He looked at me and, 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 you know, through tears, he said, um, Scott, if I'd known then what I know now about how our country would treat these commandos, there's no way that I would have walked down to the recruiter's office on 9-12-2001 and joined special forces. And and if I have anything to do with it, my son will go nowhere near that organization.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's shameful. Um, you know, you, you ask, and, and you know what I, I think part of it is, and I've had this conversation with a guy um, he was a ranger, and then he, he went on to Delta Force for yep. a few years, but he got wounded pretty bad in Iraq, and he, his career kind of ended short. But we're talking, and, and then we, we kind of touched on this, the sort of uh, disconnect between people who actually deploy and, or are involved in, in any kind of effort in the war, and, and the people who, who don't, the civilians or, or people who just don't pay attention or don't really care. And one of the things we we sort of came up with was, uh, you know, long time ago, when wars happened, usually when the, uh, you know, the, the war was lost, the enemy was, you know, at the the gates of your, your town or city or wherever you lived. So the the yeah. impacts of that were were very real for everybody, but it's just in, in yeah. today's day yeah. and age, the war is thousands of miles away, so it's like. We lose, but you know it—it it, yeah. it doesn't affect—it doesn't necessarily affect the everyday life of an American or a Brit or or a French, you know. Nope. So it's like the the response to it is different. But you know, if it's a scenario where you know, let's yeah. say Mexico and Canada are invading from the south and the north, then people are like, "Oh shit!" Like you know, this is real. But f- for the people who actually are That's involved right. in this, it's it's real for them, you know, and and it's uh. That's it. It, it really That's is a shame it. that, yep. you know, th- this is allowed to happen where people who have uh, sacrificed everything alongside Americans are just getting abandoned, you know.
1: It is. And we're so much better than that. And 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 the, the real part that just baffles me is how our leaders can just allow this to happen, yeah. how they can just sit silent, you know, to just sit silent. And then even worse, um, you know get on their cell phone and shift responsibility for this by like texting, Hey, can you get my guy out? I mean, I, I'm not kidding you, John, after the ISIS K explosion at the, at the Abbey gate, um, I got a. I I was contacted by a senior advisor to Kamala Harris hmm. to get their favorite Afghan out of the country. And they've got like a, you know, a squadron of Delta, the Marines, paratroopers there, and any of whom would gladly go out and get this person, but they were restricted from doing so. So, you know, the the, the West Wing is contacting a 54-year-old storyteller, <laughs> you know, to get their person out using a signal app. I mean, it's a theater of the absurd, man. Yeah, and, no, that is and, insane. And, and, and this happened, you know, general officers, admirals were doing the same thing. They were like, you know, they were contacting uh, retired generals. To go get their, you know, to 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 work their influence to get people out. They were they were shifting it off to these volunteer groups, and 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 even in some cases, they were kind of turning a blind eye to to NCOs and junior officers who were taking quote unquote leave, or setting up overnight uh, cots in their in their day room or their their classrooms and running basically mini operation centers you know, adjacent to the real operations center that was sitting fucking empty.
2: Yeah, it's, You know, it's it is
1: like, what, what planet are we on, man? And, and how is this okay? Like, this is not okay. And it's not okay to put this on and have these NCOs and junior officers risking their careers, right? So that the generals and admirals and sergeants, majors stay clean. And it's not okay to put this on veterans, right? And, 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 and ask them to use their own personal checking account and retrigger all of their trauma, because you know i don't want i don't want to throw my rank on the table you know and, and especially with people who've got like thirty plus years in service wh- I mean what better way to me make a stand and end it yeah, you know, but none of that happened and and it just really' it's baffling to me it's baffling to me,
2: yeah, and like you know, I had people hitting me up like. I do a podcast and and talk about these things and like it it was that bad. And like uh, there was someone who had worked for a particular organization, an Afghan who had done some undercover work and was successful. And I think at some point they compromised like the the records of everybody who worked for the, the, the government and the Americans. So they knew who he was and they were targeting him. Yeah. And and this is a guy who worked for, like I said, like a legitimate, like, organization. And someone f- who used to work at that organization contacted a friend of mine and that person contacted me to see if I can help out. And I'm like, like, I do a fucking podcast, you know, like, w- what can I do? And I mean, I, I happen to know people and so I, I tried everything, but uh, ultimately it fell through. Um, And it, it's just sad that it, it takes... Uh, you know, civilians and retired military, retired intel, retired State Department folks to, to just do what needed to be done when it, it, could have, it could have been done probably faster and more effectively had the government just went full throttle and, and did what they should have done, you know.
1: 100%, man, 100%. The government could have solved this problem. This is I mean, this is what the State Department the special operations community. This is what they do, USAID. Um, Now, that's not to say that I I do believe there was a valuable contribution made by the the privatized efforts, uh, the private efforts of some of these groups, uh, the ones that were really well-intended, the veteran group in particular. And, you know, to this day, they still haven't been acknowledged. For what they did. Uh, they haven't been acknowledged by in the CENTCOM report. They haven't been acknowledged by the Congress. Not that any of these veterans need a pat on the back, but man, damn. They 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 really carried a heavy load and they did it on behalf of their country and their partners. And there's not even been recognition of what they did. The president didn't even mention them in the State of the Union. That's that's a that's that's a real lick, I think, on just how unaware and tone-deaf yeah. our senior leaders are at all levels. Um, and and frankly, I think that. You know, we talk about warriors for life, soldier for life, Marine Corps for life, soft for life. And up until this event, I think it was all just bullshit. I don't I think it was just a reason to get together and drink. Right. But 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 I think what we saw with Afghanistan was that 20 years of war and this deep experience that really the, the warrior for life thing is a real thing. Like they these are these are people with game, with capability, and they they came together and mobilized and did some Herculean things Mm -hmm. in a very short period of time. And I think it's fair to say that of those hundred thousand plus people that made it here to the U S most of them were not the right people, but those who were the right people, the bulk of them were presented responsibly vetted by these volunteer groups. And I think it's irresponsible to not acknowledge that and go, okay, wow. With all of these other complex situations we're facing in the future, Where could soft for life, warriors for life actually be leveraged in a helpful, meaningful way in a private, public kind of approach? But you don't see any of that. You don't see that kind of responsible conversation. You don't see general officers past and present saying, hey, how do we actually uh, bottle this and make this a positive thing for our nation, this private, public approach? Instead, they're just crickets, man, nothing. Um, but you know, when those guys were in charge and fighting the war, man, they would, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a microphone. And, and, and it's just, it's interesting, right. To see the, the silence, it's just deafening right now. And there's so many good things that we could be talking about in addition to things that are, that are negative that need to be talked about too. Um, there's no accountability. There's been no lessons learned. Isn't that what we do as a military? Don't we do lessons learned after a, an event? There's been nothing. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that is that, like, a lot of the experts on moral injury, they say that the only way that the veteran population is going to heal over this moral injury is if they see that this cycle of abandonment is broken and that there are assurances that it won't happen again. And right now, I don't see anything, anything from the political, diplomatic or military leadership that tells me that's in the, in play.
2: Yeah, that's such a great point. It's like you see this and we know that they know the the you know the upper levels of the state department white house uh you know retired military high rankers whatever they know what happened you know this was it was everywhere uh there were yeah. you know articles on major platforms interviewing people involved in some yeah. of the different uh efforts and it's like if if you're the the state department and you see like wow like like all these retired folks and literally took a few days, got together, figured out a, a process that worked and were able to successfully like guide people to safety and you know that capability shouldn't be underestimated like that's very valuable you know to have people who are skilled and and smart enough and and willing to to you know take on the task of of whatever it might be and and they absolutely should have, you know, I, on some level, at least reached out and say, you know, we appreciate what you did. And 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 maybe we could even put something together to to work a scenario like this in the future um, and just, you know, I agree. pull the pull from the book of, of what you guys did. It worked. And, and let's do it again if, if another situation arises. Um
1: Yeah, if it makes sense. And look at what happened in Ukraine. A lot of the humanitarian efforts you see in Ukraine were groups that were working in Afghanistan that were so advanced, they rapidly pivoted Mm -hmm. and they have done amazing things. Now, there's also, you know, where does that end? I mean, I think there is an important conversation to have, again, on the private public partnership front of like, where does private groups go too far? You know, when do you start to get it into the the realm of instruments of power, right? With diplomacy and national security that, you know, you've overstepped. And I think that's a fair conversation too, but why aren't we having it? <laughs> like that's the, to me, that's the bigger point because there is utility in these private efforts, soft for life, veterans for life, playing intelligence of professionals for life, playing a role in the gaps and seams. Uh, most recently there was a protest down in Ecuador, protests all over the country uh, six uh, college students were down there in, a, in kind of a summer assignment, and they got they got isolated uh, in an area, and they were about to be overrun. Parents were freaking out. the 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 call went out on the on the on the uh, on the volunteer network that had been stood up for Afghanistan and Ukraine. And I want you to know, in like two and a half hours, the veterans involved had mobilized a chopper that went in and flew those kids out faster than any response from the embassy. It, it, it is amazing, and and it is it is a you know it to me. It speaks to the amazing horsepower that our veterans and our military families and our gold star families represent to this nation. They are a national treasure, and right now our senior leaders at all levels across all disciplines, our senior leaders, are just stepping on them, and they are adding fuel to the flame of a raging moral injury right now, and and they're allowing their own careerism. And their own fear of losing their relevance and status to 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 allow this fragile, precious population to slip away. And, and I, I think it, it could be, you know, they're the last bastion of institutional trust. And if we lose them, I don't going to happen to our country.
2: So is is all your uh, all your combat experience? Is that all Afghanistan? yeah
1: pretty much I've got a little bit of time in Iraq a very short period of time over there when I was working in the interagency and then uh I worked in Colombia and the Andean Ridge during the nineties, which you know had its own sporty nature to it but technically was not a, not a war but um uh it certainly it certainly uh was was a pretty hot area during the nineties during those deployments and you know and, and so my first exposure to combat was in colombia mm. and then um Afghanistan for multiple rotations after that.
2: Uh, so the Colombia piece is that I mean, if you can speak about it, is that just like uh, yeah. like fighting against like rebel like uh, you know sort of rebels trying to overthrow the government? Yep. It
1: was by it was it, you know it was it was, by, it was by with and through work with the with the with the Colombian Special Operations Forces, Colombian National Police, to primarily deal with the counter nar- counter narcotics, mm. but also counter insurgency work to some degree. Um, and a lot of it was, 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 was train and equip. Um, there was some advisory work that went on and, uh, you know, th- th- you found yourself in some, in some areas that were, um, were out there on the edges, out there on the fringes and, um, in order to be as relevant as you possibly could. Now it, it was far more constrained than what you saw in Afghanistan, where you could literally advise and assist at the shoulder of a commando kicking in a door. Um, but, uh, but yeah, my first exposure to a combat zone and to the to the risks inherent to combat was in Colombia, doing that by with and through thing with the with the Com- Com- uh, Colombian Special Ops.
2: And you were so were you a Green Beret for your entire career?
1: I was, yeah. Well, I, I you know you I was a Special Forces officer, so you could try out for Special Forces about four or five years in, and that's what I did. And um, got selected, went through the qualification course, I had wanted to do this since I was a 14-year-old kid and um, and uh, was primarily assigned, initially assigned to Seventh Special Forces Group where I, I worked Central and South America from like 1996 until 9-11. And then stayed in Seventh Group and our group kind of shifted focus over to Afghanistan. There's only like 6,500 Green Berets and, you know, we focus on the by, with and through. We we advise host nation indigenous people to stand up on their own, whether those were villagers or commandos. And there's a, just a handful of us. So half the, the regiment kind of focused on Iraq, the other half focused on Afghanistan. And that was where I did the bulk of my time. And I did three combat tours in Afghanistan with some shorter trips in between, but nowhere near the the level of combat experience and uh, hardships and rotations that some of my brothers and sisters did. I mean, 10, 11, 12 rotations, it was insane.
2: So uh so you went through the the special forces uh, qualification course um it's so funny because I've interviewed a ton of green berets uh, and maybe only like 2 or 3 of them were officers and I never asked this question and, and I okay. didn't and I didn't think about it till I was preparing yeah. for this um so mm-hmm. uh, on the special forces A team you have the commo guys the medics the weapons guys yeah. uh, demo guys etc uh, everyone sort of has their specialty. Um, does the officer also have a specialty uh, as far as that goes, or is their job just to oversee the team?
1: Yeah, I think no, they don't have a specialty. And it's a great question. And the, 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 you know, your your job as the, as is the detachment commander. Like you are responsible for everything that unit does or fails to do, just like any other command. Mm. And it's the equivalent to a company command in terms of pay grade. So a captain. Commands that, and then the, our companies uh, called B teams or AOBs are commanded by majors, and then our battalions by lieutenant colonels. But but the A team, which is the primary unit of maneuver in special forces, it, you know, it needs to be stated that special forces, like all special ops organizations, are NCO you know heavy organizations. But special forces, I believe, far and away, is an NCO organization. Like it is the true backbone. You know, you have ten sergeants on a twelve-person team, and then you have a warrant officer and a captain. Um, and these guys and girls now spend and inordinate amounts of time on that team. You know, as a junior medic, then a senior medic, and then a, an assistant intel sergeant, and then ultimately a team sergeant. And you know, when I was a team leader before nine eleven, we had a team sergeant that had been on the in seventh group for like twenty-one years already. Mm. I mean the amount of experience these nco's have is is insane and the the way that the, the special forces a team is organized is not only do you have weapons commo engineer and medical but also that 12 person team is 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 structurally designed to recruit organize, train, equip, and advise an indigenous battalion. Right. So the team can split into, in, into like staff functions. They can each, you know, a couple of NCOs can advise, you know, up to a, like 50, 100 indigenous personnel, and frankly, often do. You could split the team. And so as a, as a captain, as a commander, I found that the, the real, for me anyway, the, the primary role that, that I played as, as an attachment commander was really to to look to empower The Hmm. NCOs on my team any way possible to make sure that they were resourced and they had what they needed and wherever possible to to be that bridge between strategy and tactics, to be that bridge that could operationalize the strategic vision and, 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 and help the team realize that however it needed to happen. I needed to know enough about what they did. Um, so that I could, you know, represent that up and out and advocate for them and then also be a viable and valuable member of that team. If you were doing direct action or special recon, you know, you, you could carry your weight and, and do those tactical type applications. But at the end of the day, a special forces A team's true service to the community is to go in with 12 and come out with 1,200, right? right. To go in with 12 and come out with 1,200 indigenous people at your shoulder. So what role could I play for that as a captain? It is, I think, is to, to make sure that the, 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 the NCOs on that team had everything they needed to be successful in that endeavor uh, and to be that bridge between strategy and task.
2: So were you with seventh group for your entire career or did you uh, switch out?
1: Most of it, yeah. I left 7th I left Group in 2007 uh, as a senior major, came down to Tampa Special Operations Command, and was going to come down here and, 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 and wait out the battalion command list. So I did it to my joint time down here, and then um, I was selected for a battalion command, but it was not an SF battalion. Um, I did not like where things were going in Afghanistan at that point, this was 2012. I didn't you know, I, I didn't like it, so I did, or excuse me, 2010, I did one more tour uh, with the village stability program over in Afghanistan, came back, selected again, because I had turned the first command down, selected again, and turned it down, and was told, hey, hey if you turn this one down, it's with prejudice, you're not gonna get promoted. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I joined the army to be a Green Beret, I didn't join the army to be a full colonel, and I, I just didn't like where things were headed. I felt like I could be more on the outside than the inside. So I laid my rank on the table and I, and I retired and, um, and um, never looked back, was happy to have done it. And I guess maybe that's kind of why I have a, cha- a hangup with some of the stuff that's going on with some of these men and women who have over 30 years and this wholesale abandonment and damage to our veterans and yet still just complete silence
2: so what was your experiences like um, in Afghanistan were you guys like working in like small remote bases like what was that like
1: well you know the at that point in my life I was a field grade officer so I didn't I didn't do as much time in the field as a lot of the the team guys right? right and but but my experience with it was that um, the first ten years of the war were were mostly on, you know, for the most part, walking the enemy down and retribution and surgical strike. There was we kind of got away from our roots a little bit. Now the original, you know, invasion of Afghanistan with Fifth Group 595 and the other horse soldiers, they did a phenomenal job of unconventional warfare, mobilizing the Northern Alliance and the Pashtun tribes and. And then the groups that followed, some of the teams did do that indigenous approach. But for the most part, like it was all focused on surgical targeting. We weren't really building out the capacity of of Afghanistan's security forces and, and, you know, stabilizing the rural areas so they could stand on their own. The way Green Berets are kind of designed to do. And then I I was fortunate enough to help put a program together called Village Stability Operations uh, in 2000 that kind of got back to our roots. We realized that there were more Taliban in the rural areas of Afghanistan than when we started. And we needed to get back to our roots. We needed to get back to helping local Afghans stand up on their own. And and so that's what we did. We put in place this this program that was really built on the CIDG program from Vietnam Mm -hmm. with the Montagnards before it was overloved by the conventional force and collapsed under its own weight, which also happened in Afghanistan. Um, we put this v- VSO program together, and basically it was it was deploying special forces, ODAs, SEAL platoons, Marine special ops teams into contentious areas and then helping the Afghan villagers develop a militia force and stand up on their own, and then ultimately tying that into the, the district apparatus. Uh, that's where our work with the commandos, the Afghan special forces, really came into play. And, um, you know, I think it was a good pathway for long-term foreign internal defense or FID, a capacity building. It would have taken several decades, but but there was certainly a pathway to build that out where there was a a local antibody to violent extremism. And um, we pulled the plug on it. We pulled the plug on the village program in 2013. That's when I decided to retire. And then we got back to just like whacking targets. And um, I think it became a house of cards. It couldn't stand under its own weight.
2: Yeah, I know, uh, you know, from the many conversations I've had with Green Berets uh, on the podcast, off the podcast, you know, that's like the bread and butter of special forces to go in, train, build armies or, or units yeah. and, and and fight. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily what SEALs are used to doing. Um, no. I think MARSOC is doing, has been doing a little bit of that. I'm not 100% sure but they have. um I you know I know I've spoken to SEALs yeah. who were in Afghanistan around that time and they told me like that was sort of their least favorite thing to do was the the VSO stuff um, but you know like I said that like that's the bread and butter for Green Berets um, do you think that it it was less effective when a non special forces team was running those type of operations?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation around that, and I and I do think that there are certain organizations that are, are better suited to do it. Mm. It's not to say that the the SEALs and and some of the other units didn't didn't do an effective job, because I think they like good special operators, they adapted and they and they they made it work. But you know, these units, that's part of the kind of the problem I think with with you know the the identity crisis and. In special forces today, and and maybe even broader, more broadly across the regiment, is like I think we, you know, you've got units. I'll just stick with special forces. I'll just leave it at that. Is like I believe that special forces has a very clear identity in the sense of what we're chartered to do. If you look at our origins coming out of the OSS, and you know our work in Vietnam, and um, you know by with and through. And mobilizing indigenous people as a combat multiplier is a real contribution from the SF community. But yet we we seem to kind of want to move away from that. In 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 post 9/11, we, we my goodness, we self-selected into like JSOC Jr. Right. You know, and 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 we 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 developed this kind of direct action strike capability where we moved away from the buy with and through thing, and that's not good. It's not it's not a healthy thing to do. And so I believe that we, we walked away from our own mission and hurt ourselves in that regard. And as a result of that today, we are a regiment divided. Um, but yeah, I think that for the most part, when it comes to partner work and that kind of particularly for an internal defense, when you have to engage out in these outlying areas, SF teams are designed for that with the medical capability and the engineer support, like it's what we're designed to do. And, um, I think they probably are the force of choice of that kind of surrogate work. I don't know that the soft community even fully recognizes that capability.
2: Yeah, I know a ton of uh, SF guys who were like senior NCOs, uh, you know, they retired as master sergeants, sergeant majors, things like that. And um, some of them had uh, deployed probably equally to Afghanistan and to Iraq. And uh, I think, yeah. particularly on their Iraq deployments, they were essentially functioning, you know, as a another like JSOC unit, even though they were special forces. I think they they fell under the command of uh, whoever was running JSOC at the time, and they were just a a a, a raiding force essentially, um, right. similar to Rangers, SEALs, yeah. or you know Delta Force, um, and and then they'll have that kind of deployment in iraq and then go to afghanistan and sort of work a more traditional special forces role uh, which is is kind of interesting
1: yeah yeah and and, i mean sf guys do have a breadth of that mission like we have special recon direct action unconventional warfare foreign internal defense like we have the capability to do that and and in some cases it makes total sense Um, but i think that doing that as a primary mission set is a mistake. Like, that's not what we're chartered to do. It's not what we're equipped to do. And and frankly, it more importantly, uh, it's not that our guys aren't good at it. They're great at it. But well, what it does is it deprives the nation. It deprives DOD. It deprives the um, the country team of the real capability that we bring, which is mobilizing indigenous outcomes. You know, like that's the real Rub and and when you take SF out of the equation and you 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 kick doors and that's all you do, then you've lost that capability. And again, I would challenge anybody to look at the near peer threats that we're in and and tell me that we're not going to rely on surrogates and partners right. to be effective in the world.
2: Right. I mean, even just looking at Ukraine. Um, yep. Uh, I think the the Ukrainian yep. government has like sort of middle of the country and then to the west is all ukraine and then probably slightly yeah. east of the middle and then east is russian controlled or at least s- several regions are yeah. and uh you have yeah. uh, you know some yeah. of these uh, cities that are under russian control they'll put like a ukrainian uh some i don't know what what they're being called but they'll be in charge like a a provincial governor or something but what we're seeing right. is uh the shadow governor yeah and uh but what we're seeing is like this sort of unconventional warfare being conducted where these these governors are being assassinated or you know the, their deputies or the, the people who work for them the, you know their their cars are getting blown up and, and things like that um so it, it's just interesting to see uh you know that that sort of unconventional warfare type of thing happening uh, in real time in a a conflict uh, outside of the Middle East.
1: And I don't think that we're you're right to call that out. And I don't think, honestly, that we leveraged our special forces capability in that capacity either. I think we we Mm -hmm. built we helped the Ukrainians build up resilience and and that was great. But when it was go time. You know, we pulled our Green Berets out of the country and, and they operated from Poland and other neighboring countries while, you know, other, other NATO countries were in there sticking and moving, doing the indigenous approach. And I, I'm just, you know, <laughs> I, I sit back and I look at that and I'm just thinking, what are we doing? Like, what really, really, what are we doing with this capability? We're not even leveraging it. Do we even understand Uh, in our own house what what the Special Forces mission is and what it's capable of doing. And are we willing to employ it in the way that it was designed, right? Or or are we allowing other factors that are, you know, less important to block that? And it, it just seems like we are moving further and further away from a sincere, authentic ability to leverage partners in high stakes environments, and I fear that if we don't get back to that, we're going to reach a tipping point where no one's going to trust us, and we're going to. That really puts our our operators, our green berets, at risk, and it puts the nation at risk.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, I, you know, I agree with you. Uh, uh, you know, hopefully, moving forward, you know, there can be some sort of smartening up of of some of these uh, things when it comes to. Utilizing units and, and getting the maximum effect a, a capab- out of their capabilities. Um, right. Ukraine is a perfect example. Uh, you know there are other places around the world where America's working to counter some sort of uh, threat. Um, right. So yeah, so it was a uh, it was fantastic to speak to you. Uh, like I said in the beginning, I, I'd wanted wanted to talk to someone from who was involved yeah. in pineapple express uh you know uh, for a while now so uh, i really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you um and then also uh, can you mention the podcast that you have and if anyone listening wants to sort of keep up with what you're doing uh where can they do that at?
1: yeah 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 if you go to scottman.com uh all of my body of work is there to include our play on the War, my podcast some pretty helpful TED Talks and just a lot of the stuff we're doing to help veterans tell their stories. Like we're pretty active. And then my podcast is also there. It's called the Rooftop Podcast. And I think we talk about a lot of the stuff, John, that builds on what you talk about. So I think it's very complimentary. Uh, Also, you can find out about the book there. And then the book, the Pineapple Express book is going to be coming out on August 30, as you said, and you can go to OperationPineappleExpress.com. Uh, or on Amazon, either one, and get it. But uh, would love people to to come and check it out. Yes, yeah, Scott, Scottman.com and there's a lot of cool stuff there.
2: Yeah, and, and for the audience, like I highly recommend that you get this book. Um, you know, I cannot wait for it to come out. Um, and so I do a lot of my books, I consume them through audio. There's gonna be an audible or audio version, right?
1: Not only is there gonna be an audible version, but I recorded it myself nice. in the studio and and uh, put my acting chops to work and embodied 21 voice
2: oh no way awesome
1: in the book so yeah it's pretty pretty dynamic and I think people will really enjoy the audiobook
2: oh that's awesome yeah uh, yeah I these days uh, I, I sort of prefer it's just easier for me to just you know I can still do things and and consume the book by listening to it so I kind of prefer that now um, but yeah, you know, Cool.
1: let me know what you think of it. I, I'm, I'm really interested to get people's thoughts on the audio version. It was a really um, it was a labor of love mm-hmm. to, to try to bring these characters to life uh, through voice. And I, and I hope I did.
2: Yeah. And I know a lot of authors don't like to uh, do the audio versions of the book themselves. But so I, I think it's interesting that you decided to do that. And I, I can't wait to, to listen to it. Um, so, yeah. So like I said, I, feel it was... like I
1: owed people that if they were going to take the time. Sorry, I was just going to say, I felt like I owed people that if they were going to take the time to listen, I owed them the sincerity of reading it myself.
2: Yeah, I I think it's great. Um, So, yeah, you know, again, thank you for coming on here. Um, I really do appreciate it. Uh, You know, I appreciate your perspective. Uh, I think the audience will have uh, some value from this conversation. And I also want to thank you for your service as well.
1: Same to you, John, and thanks for what you do. It's a great podcast. I appreciate all the listeners. And, and I hope that they'll check out the book and, and that they'll keep the Afghan people in their hearts and the veterans that are helping them because uh, we, we need an active citizenry to make this right.